0: Thank you for joining us today on New Books Network. Today I have Dr. Michael Ramirez, uh, an Associate Professor of Sociology at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. Uh, He earned his PhD and MA in Sociology from the University of Georgia, and he earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in Sociology from Texas Tech University. His area of expertise include class, race, and gender, with a particular emphasis on men and masculinities, work, identity, aging, and life course, and qualitative methods. His first book that we'll be talking about today on new books in sociology is titled Destined for Greatness, Passions, Dreams, and Aspirations in the College Music Town, particularly focused on the music town of uh, Georgia, and it was published just this year by Rutgers University Press. Uh, In this book, he examines men and women pursuing informal careers in music as they move into adulthood. Uh, Some of his other work has been published in Symbolic Interaction, Journal of Men Studies, Journal of Adolescent Research, Qualitative Sociology Review, among many other outlets. I look forward to talking to him today, and uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Ramirez, for, for being with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Can you tell me a little bit maybe more about yourself and how you came upon this study?
1: Sure. Um I guess the the most direct answer to this, um, as is, is it can be, is that I've always loved music. I know everyone out there, you know, pretty pretty much loves music, but um I kind of feel like that's that's like a big component that led to to this the study of this music world and um as I was making my way through not just the undergraduate but especially through my graduate program, um, I really started to appreciate what a lot of sociologists refer to as refer to as sociology of the everyday, and just studying those everyday aspects of life that, that a lot of times we don't really think about or question or, or analyze. Um, and when I moved to Athens to start the graduate program at the University of Georgia. Um, I was excited that there's a a music culture there. And, you know, like I said, I'd I'd always loved music and, you know, kind of like a lot of teen boys and and teen girls. um, You know, I played the guitar when I was younger and, you know, I'd kind of played around with little rock bands and that sort of thing, but I'd never really thought about pursuing music and I, I never really had it in me to even consider that as an option um, but once i moved to athens and i saw all these bands just playing every night and there's all these venues and you know just the history of, of athens with rem and you know just the, the slew of other bands um it was hard for me to not view that and not think about that sociologically so the more time that i spent there and the more times I spent um, in the sociology program, I just started to think that there was something ripe for sociological investigation, and so I started kind of thinking about it and thinking about what sort of um, questions I could ask, and you know, of course, exploring other um, sociology um, of music studies. And you know, there's so much great work out there, and and you know, I kind of gobbled all that up. Um, Leblanc's Pretty and Punk. I mean, that's one of my favorite books in the sociology of music. Um, Ross Hanfler's Straight Edge, um, some of the work that Claussen did on uh, When Women Play the Bass, um blue Chicago, yeah, you know, I mean they're just book after book after book that that I just I, I loved I, I thought it was really informative in terms of how music matters and how it really does inform us about these social issues beyond um, just those musical worlds um, and then especially when um billby when william Bilby gave his um, ASA Presidential Address, and it's called Rock in a Hard Place. And that, it just really solidified a lot of what I was thinking and a lot of what I was kind of conceptualizing in terms of these um, questions about music and, and musical pursuits. Um, so I was again, just kind of on the side, just reading all these books and all this work in the sociology of music because um, at, at that point, I don't think it was that really mainstream. I know there's a lot of cultural studies on music and a lot of, um, you know, some social psychological work on on music and of course some gender focused work on, on music, but there wasn't really like this coherent, like sub area in sociology um, focused on music. So it was kind of, uh, you know, a little challenging, I guess, for me to kind of navigate what um, particular question, especially what, what particular frame I was going to use to to do this potential um, study on musicians. Um, but I clearly remember, actually, I forgot about this initially, but then a, a few years ago, I, this memory kind of came back to me, but I remember I was taking a gender course um at UGA and one of our readings was Kathleen Gerson's hard choices which has nothing to do with music you know it's about work family conflict and and it's about how how women basically make choices in terms of their their working lives and, and their family lives and I absolutely fell in love with that book and probably to this day if I had to choose my single most favorite um sociology book, it would would probably be hard choices. Um, And one thing that I especially appreciated about her book was just the frame that that she used. And it was very much this um, retrospective life course um, frame that she used to understand these women's lives. And so that always kind of stuck with me. And as I was thinking about musicians, I thought... Th- that could be the perfect way to analyze their lives is to interview them, you know, at this point in their lives, but also ask them about beginnings and, and kind of ask them about um how it is that they see uh, and kind of make sense of um how they ended up where they ended up. Yeah. And in, in terms of their, their current lives. So, you know, very much a symbolic interactionist um, perspective, but, um, but I, I, I feel like I really owe a lot to, uh, to Gerson's book and into that framework because um, I don't know if I would have done the research that I'd done and, and written the book that I did um, were it not for um, her work and, of course, the work of, of other sociologists as well. But, um, yeah, it just kind of started like that. I just loved music, you know, and I think like, like a lot of sociologists, um, we can't really turn the sociology off ever. And... Um, you know, even these these personal interests or, or these things that we kind of live or experience or see in our day to day lives um, have have has important sociological um, kind of implications and significance to it. Um, so that's kind of you know how it how it started, and you know, of course, the the book is is focused on music culture and careers, and um, in a lot of ways, it's really looking at at aging and, and how that matters in, in these music worlds. Um, and i think early on i was interested in in how it is that cuz like i said i i love music and i've i've been in a a ton of pretty terrible bands myself um but i've never been had that experience where i thought this is what i want to do like i want to pursue music i want to you know go full force with uh, with pursuing this career in music cuz to me that would be the scariest decision I could ever make, because it's such a precarious um, line of work and Um, you know, it's so competitive and, you know, it would just, to me, it would just be more stress than, than I could ever think I could tolerate. Um, But I was curious, like, how is it that people make these, you know, quote, irrational choices to pursue music? Because that's how a lot of the musicians framed it is that, um, you know, their, their families and, you know, their, their partners and their, their their friends and other people in their lives really, um, you know, thought they were, they were making the wrong choice, and that they weren't being um, rational in terms of thinking about their uh, their futures and about their their adulthoods and, and that sort of thing so so I was kind of
0: if I remember right I remember, right, it was uh, uh, females most often received that because their expectation was to have children at that point in their life, and many of them were focusing on their, their music career.
1: Right, yeah, I think that um, yeah, it was kind of a unique sample because there was not it. well, I think there was just a handful, and I remember one in particular, um, musician that, that actually did have a child, but for a lot of them, um, that was kind of the uh, – one of the the critical points is that I don't have children, you know, I have a family. So, you know, I'm not like, you know, quote stealing, uh, you know, money from their mouths or, or, you know, food from their mouths or that, that sort of thing. Um, but that kind of what they would frame as a pseudo selfish decision um, wasn't negatively impacting um, their families' lives. Cause they, cause most of them didn't have families. Um, so yeah, that was kind of one way that they navigated that particular issue. And, and it was, it was far easier, I think, for men to um, kind of reconcile those issues compared to to women because there were some women that were um, kind of up in the air in terms of what they thought their futures held, and especially in terms of their their family lives um, whereas there were there were some men that thought I don't think that I'm going to to have children or you know I don't think that that would um, really impact my my work life or, or, you know, my, my music life. Um, so yeah, that was very much a, a gendered, um, component of, of the way that they would, um, kind of navigate that decision, certainly.
0: And then the other piece that I appreciated, uh, most about the book is the, is how you uh, took an approach from early, starting on early on in life and showing how those fundamental years of, uh, of childhood and the class of the family was crucial to the development of their music into uh, into college years.
1: Oh right, absolutely, yeah. From I mean, really from from day one, it felt like um, yeah, class and and you know just how that was embedded in their family really did um, you know set the tone for for what was to come next. Um, you know, for the most part, it was a, a heavily middle class sample um, that I um, included or that I was able to recruit for for this book um and that that mattered i mean that 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 certainly mattered in terms of um how it was that music became an option for them you know um and just the the opportunities that arose um due to that certainly
0: and the participants who were who were college students but uh didn't necessarily come to uh Athens Georgia for college um using that basically as a backdrop for their for their music career and potentially using that as a as an option in case music didn't work out for them
1: right right and that was it was interesting just to see how how the you know the the locale of of athens mattered because for actually for for a good deal of them um they i think there were there were kind of two different things that that were going on with with part of the sample. And and some of them um, went to UGA and and enrolled in UGA just because, you know, partly because it was a flagship university of of Georgia. And, you know, their parents had gone there and grandparents had gone there and, you know, good reputation and and that sort of thing. Um, And for some of them, it wasn't until they – they arrived in Athens and kind of discovered that, that world of music, even if they had participated in music earlier in life, um, that that option really opened up to them. Um, And they, they realized that they could easily fit music into their college lives because, you know, they were still, I mean, of course, you know, for for these students and and for these musicians during that time in life um they were adults but but they still had a lot of um kind of leeway and flexibility in their day-to-day lives so it was very easy for them to 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 be successful college students and to do well and earn good grades and you know do everything that they need to do to to keep their their parents happy um but still do uh, music on the side so it was there's very little tension during um, those years, you know, during those emerging adult years um, where they could pull it off. I mean, they they could pull it off um, fairly easily, um, just kind of navigating both of those identities, being a college student and also being um, a musician. And a lot of their parents actually were, they, they took pride in that because it wasn't something that they necessarily hid from their parents. Um, and But their parents were just impressed or just kind of proud that oh my my son or my daughter is basically a college student by day and a musician by night and you know does well in his or her classes and then on weekends you know does this band thing and they have the CD coming out you know so there was this you know very much this pride and the support that um, they had um, from their parents early in life um, whereas another portion of the the sample um, who who moved specifically to Athens because it's such an iconic music town. um, You know, there's a lot more writing on that decision where they, some of them moved from as far away as, as Michigan and, you know, sometimes from Florida, which wasn't quite as far away. Um, But then some from Utah, but they, they just trekked, Far, far away from home, um, to make Athens their home, um, because they they knew just the reputation that the town had, and they knew there were cer- certain bands that they that they knew. Sometimes bands had um, toured through their hometowns, and they'd met them, kind of befriended them, and and um, there was just this almost this pool this this pool in terms of um, yeah, Athens, great, you know, Athens is a very supportive music town. Um, you know you should absolutely move if if you have that kind of passion that that you're that's in your blood or you know that that you're um kind of uh, interested in, in pursuing yourself um and for those it was you know there was a lot more writing on it because they were moving specifically to build their their musical careers and their their dreams on that on that dramatic change and just you know packing up and moving and um you know. Locating to a new town where they didn't know anyone didn't really know anything about the town other than um, bands that stemmed from that town um, so it was more precarious for them, but it was still very much a a risk that they were um, willing willing to take um, Things became different once the once the musician um, aged um, out of those emerging adult years and especially after age like 25 26 or so um, it was it was more difficult for them to kind of navigate those musical um, decisions that they were committing to Uh, but at least early on during those early adult years um, it was it was pretty easy for them to balance balance both of those aspects of their lives
0: and did you see any males being more risk taking than what the females were, uh, or did you see any any gendered um, observations in that area? It
1: it did seem like there was yeah a little a little bit more at least in the stories that that I was hearing and the narratives that I was getting from the women and men. Um, part of it was that men were like everything was riding on this like like this is what they were destined to do you know this is what they were put on this earth to do they were artists they were musicians um like for for some of the men they said this isn't really a a choice like this is this is like a virus that i have you know and i'm just compelled to do it like even if i try to fight it i can't fight it but this is this is what i'm going to do this is what i have to do um for some of them it was kind of framed as as maybe this risk-taking behavior where You know, like if I don't do it now, for some of them, it's just a now or never behavior. If I don't do this now, I'm never going to have a chance to do it, you know, and and right now I can afford to do this because right now I'm in my early 20s and, you know, right now I don't have a family and right now, you know, me, myself, I can live, I can scrape by with with little um, uh, little income and, and that sort of thing um but yeah for the for the women there was a somewhat different story they were still very much um committed to music um and they you know they still you know talked about how they felt it in their blood um but they were more apprehensive in some ways just because they partly because they felt like imposters you know that was just very much a recurring theme is that they didn't always feel like they um completely Um, belonged in that world. Um, And again, it's just due to the, the gendered uh, makeup of it and how, how it it would still continue to be this um, gender dominated um, field. And, you know, rock is still kind of framed as this masculine, heavy um, subculture, I guess. Um, And I think that's one thing that, that gave them a little hesitation coupled with the fact that uh, a lot of, Or at least some of the women that I interviewed um, had less um, less of a history um, in terms of um, their participation in bands and even like the longevity that they had had in terms of um, learning or or mastering their their instruments. So they kind of felt they kind of felt like frauds, and you know they kind of felt like they were they were imposters, and that's that's something that um, that kind of seemed to impact their their commitment or, you know, just this idea that they, that everything was going to ride, um, on their, on, you know, pinning all their, their dreams to, to music and kind of making it in the world. And then the other thing in terms of women, um, was tied to their, um, aging identities and how a lot of them almost felt it was not, not inappropriate per se, but, um, but just a little bit, um, kind of outside the parameters in terms of older women pursuing music. Like there's a lot of them half jokingly, but still I think half truthfully would would say things like, well, how cool would it be for me to be up on stage as a 40 year old woman or a 50 year old woman? Um, And there weren't any men that ever said that, like, I'm going to age out of here. Although they did have these tensions of aging, but they never felt like this is going to be, too juvenile for me to do when I'm in my thirties, forties, fifties, etc. Um, but for women, he was, it was almost this idea that, um, an adult femininity, um, was incompatible with this musician identity. So, so yeah, I think there was a lot of, um, uh, different pieces or just a, a lot of different, um, kind of effects that were coming into play in, in women's lives. That was, uh, that, that tended to, uh, give them at the very least hesitation as to whether they should or could pursue this for the
0: entirety of their lives and it could be associated to uh, as you mentioned in your book early on in life uh, parents were less reluctant to allow their uh, their young boys to move from the piano or keyboard to the uh, guitar whereas young girls would stay with the uh, piano for many more years Right, absolutely.
1: And that was that was kind of one of the surprising um findings in in the interviews is that um if of course I asked them just their musical history in terms of instrumentation and um a, a vast majority of them, both men and women, to talk about how the piano was their first instrument and um a lot of them it wasn't necessarily by choice, but a lot of them it was it was almost like this middle class um like some of them even said it's just what happened when you came of age in my family. You know, once you turned eight or ten or X years old, my parents enrolled us in piano, and you know it wasn't really a choice, but it was just kind of a, a norm in the in the family. Um, but that was something that was pretty standardized or, or pretty consistent um, in both the men and, and women's. Um, younger lives or younger experiences um, but then yeah yeah it was interesting to see how um, the men in particular they were not a fan of it you know they weren't generally um, interested or crazy about or committed to the piano sometimes uh, you know after a couple of months or a year or so they would abandon the piano um, if they could and then strategically some of them realized because they would try to, ne- to negotiate like, mom and dad, I, you know, I really want a guitar, you know, I really want a drum set. And part of that negotiation was, well, stick with the piano. Like, we want to see if you kind of have this music talent in you to begin with. And we want to see some sort of commitment in terms of you um, sticking it out with with the piano. And then, you know, in a year or in two years from now, we'll we'll talk about this guitar thing. You know, we'll talk about this rock and roll thing. Um, so for some of the men, it was just this strategic, like, all right, I just got to kind of grin and bear it you know, commit to the piano. Cause I know that it's going to pay off in terms of me um, being able to get the instrument that I really want, which is, which is the guitar. Um, whereas for, for women, there was less of that um, negotiation. And, and for women there was um, it seemed that there was a longer tenure that they had um, taking piano lessons and, you know, just kind of um, committing to the piano for, for a longer span of of time than the did the men um and that that kind of worked i wouldn't really say to their advantage later in in life but um that did help them um once they got uh the early adult years, um, that did help them to uh, um, kind of use that as an avenue into bands because they could, since they they had so many years of experience on the piano, they could easily transition that to being the key- keyboardist for the band and, you know, learning other instruments for, for the band. Um, but yeah, generally, I didn't see that... Um, that the the women would um negotiate for for guitar. And even when they loved music cuz you know the women certainly loved rock as much as the men did. So it's not that men were bigger fans or more devoted fans or you know that they were just like innately you know more drawn to rock than than women were. Um but it was just um you know just Issues in terms of I think masculinity and femininity and um, just kind of the the give and take that they got from their parents and you know the willingness that their parents did or didn't have for for them to explore other um, loud, and especially louder instruments you know a lot of the the musicians talked about how you know playing the the piano like it's a nice kind of soft you know classical kind of high status instrument but you know bringing a guitar into the home or you know, God forbid a drum set into the home. Like that's uh, something that a lot of parents just didn't want to to deal with. Just in terms of you know, just the ruckus that that, that was uh, that that was going to make. Um, but yeah, really interesting in terms of of how um, you know, perhaps due to socialization, you know, perhaps due to to the ways that um, you know these boys and girls were learning masculinity and femininity. They were um, kind of even just considering and and approaching their parents with the prospective idea of of learning new instruments and especially um rock instruments you know that was something that that uh of of course it was gonna hinder women's um musical careers later on because they had less time in which they were uh invested in 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 those rock instruments um you know the the women that later on in life eventually did get a guitar, start learning the guitar or or drums or bass or whatever, whatever the instrument may have been. Um, A lot of them um, tended to have a shorter span of years in which they had um, practiced on that particular instrument. And, and for a lot of women, they felt like they hadn't mastered that instrument. And, And I think that does lead back to that imposter status that a lot of them felt is that, you know, they'd say, and I can, I can, kind of get that i mean you know with the interviews with those boys that at age 12 13 14 when they got their first guitars um you know they had like a seven eight nine year head start to just kind of noodle around on their guitars and kind of figure out that instrument before they um, joined a serious band in, in adulthood when they were in athens versus the women Um, if they didn't get their, their first guitar or actively, um, start learning, um, rock instruments until the post high school years, um, to them, it was just more of a, it was more intimidating, um, to know, all right, I've only been playing this instrument for a year or two years. Um, and now I, do do I really think I can be in a band? Like, do I really think that I'm good enough and I've mastered this instrument enough to really make it in a quote real band? Um, and then I think probably one of the the most surprising things that I found in some of these interviews. and there's even some some quotes in the in the book that kind of capture my um, surprise. Um, but it's whenever I ask um, a couple of the women um, how many bands um they've been in before their current band and there were a handful of women that said this is my first band you know this is the the first band and the only band i've ever been in and i was just shocked because these were women who were in bands that had toured nationally you know they had one plus um records out you know they they were you know they had a pseudo or a semi-national following like they had made it kind of big you know for this being their first band um and even more surprisingly than that was um the reality that a lot of them shared with me that once they joined their first band is when they started learning their first instrument so it was just doubly uh, shocking yeah i mean i literally said wow a number of times during these interviews um and you know, part of that was just tied to uh, um, how they were invited to these bands. And a lot of times it's when they were um, in um, dating relationships with other musicians, and sometimes their boyfriends would throw out the idea, you know what, we should start a band, you know what, you should, you should learn the bass, and we should start a new band. And they would do it. But again, you know, just that, um, that hesitation, or just that idea that, yeah i'm i'm all in i'm I'm gonna go for it but you know when reality set in all right i'm joining this band you know my boyfriend who who i'm joining this band with has done this for 10 plus years like he knows what he's doing um versus me like i'm just kind of you know stumbling my way through figuring out um the bass. typically it was the bass, or sometimes the keyboards that they that they started on um you know it was just a, a world of difference um in terms of um You know, just kind of their self-defined expertise and even beyond that, just the comfort that they had with their instruments. And I really think that's something that that dramatically set the stage for um, these women and men, um, in some cases, differentially being um, comfortable in the music world and and the extent to which they imagined that they could um, pursue that for the entirety of their lives.
0: And linking back possibly to the uh, foundational years in their lives when young boys idolize and want to be like the musicians. That's something I remember uh, fondly from your book and how the girls viewed the uh, major musicians as not somebody they want to be like, but uh, someone they might adore uh, or want to date.
1: Right, yeah, and that's something that um I know that there's been other work that's kind of examined that disjuncture between men and women, boys and girls, and you know just their experiences of fandom um, in terms like when men see rock stars, they want to be the rock stars, and when girls see rock stars, they want to date the rock stars um, so there was a little bit of that, that I that I heard from um the men and women that I interviewed and, and especially the men, I think that they could they could easily look at um their favorite rock stars as they were growing up and just kind of fantasize and just kind of imagine themselves being that, you know, and whether it was, you know, Nirvana, you know, a lot of them of course talk about Nirvana and you know grunge bands that they grew up on. Um it, but even if it was more even if it was Kiss, you know, like some of them did say, yeah, even Kiss, like up there with their fa- faces painted and these platform boots and kind of these cartoonish identities that they adopted, like they could still kind of see themselves doing that. Um, or, or the David Bowies, you know, like like these other kind of gender bender um, rock icons where, you know, they could still kind of see themselves fitting into that mold or you know kind of performing um the way that they did um whereas some of the the women that that i interviewed sometimes they they were fans of i don't even think it it really mattered whether whether they were fans of um bands that were comprised of women men or, or both but um i think even whenever they um were were following bands that um had women um as singers or instrumentalists, um, I don't think that even that alone kind of pushed them to to really see themselves as as that's uh, kind of seen music as as in the realm of their possibility. Um, I think it, it may have prompted some of them, but but even just more important than that was just this this idea that rock was still just oozing with masculinity. Like it was still very much a boy's world and, and a man's world. That um, you know, I think that was, that was one of the more powerful um, kind of uh, obstacles, I guess, that the women needed to um, not, not even that they needed to overcome, but, you know, just um, this, this uh, shift in terms of what they saw versus how they imagined that they, that they could um, fit into that. Um, but yeah, certainly the, the men, you know, like, they would clearly and easily talk about the music that they'd listened to. And, you know, it wasn't too big of a stretch for them to to imagine themse- themselves doing the same things.
0: And then the other interesting piece is about uh, their mothers and fathers and about how um, mothers and fathers who were uh, divorced or when you had them separated, fathers would tend to um, sort of stand back and, uh, want to be like their children who are great musicians, but they've never found themselves as being um, as good, uh, not not spending as much time with their instrument and uh, um, sort of being cheerleaders on the, on the sideline. Whereas the, uh, the mothers tended to be more uh, reluctant to allow their child to continue on with such a, uh, such a career. Mm-hmm. Right. And and even, Early in life, um,
1: it was interesting to see how, um, of, of course, both pl- parents played a role in um, the children's musical development. Um, but it was it was interesting to to start to see these these trends in terms of the specific role that fathers played versus the roles that, that moms and, and mo- or the mothers tended to play. Um, and a lot of the the musicians, whenever they were talking or speaking about their their early years in life, um, they would talk about how just some of their earliest memories were just infused with music and, you know, they can remember taking road trips with their families and, and, you know, the, you know, the rock station would be on and, you know, they'd listen to whatever, like the cars or, you know, the police or, you know, whatever bands their, their parents were listening to. Um, but a lot of them said, really, it's when I was at home, that's when I realized what this, uh, kind of differential influence influence that I had for mom and dad um, tended to be. So so dads tended to be just the kind of like stereotypically like the the hardcore like rock music fans. Like their, their dads loved music, loved rock, loved going to concerts. You know, they'd always be blasting rock music. You know, they'd talk about how Saturdays would be the days that we'd just open up all the windows. You know, we'd clean our house and, you know, we'd just have the... You know, have the stereo turned up to turned up to eleven. You know, just listening to rock. You know, because dad would turn the music up really loud. Um, yes. So, dads loved music, um, but dads tended not to actually um, play music. And and it was, I think, kind of rare for the musicians to have fathers that played the guitar. Sometimes they had guitars laying around, but they weren't um, really well versed in 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 the guitar really and any instrument for that matter um, versus whenever they would talk about their moms they tended to um, to talk about how the moms were more artistic and and musical Um, and they had moms that were um, that would practice just the craft of Of their music or or of their art you know they had moms that played guitar or that were in folk bands or that were djs for their college radio station or um, there was one that had a mother who was um, an opera singer and and others that talked about their moms being um, uh, you know part of the church choir that sort of thing so it's kind of almost surprising you know just that you know dads loved music dads were the consummate music and rock fans um but but it was the moms that tended to actually have that training or or that that art or that performative aspect um uh, in in terms of music so it's kind of interesting to just kind of see that comparison and and just hear that comparison um, from the musicians and then you know how that kind of um adapted as they uh grew older and as the musician moved, moved into, um, the adult years and how there was these, again, just kind of these different pushes and pulls that, um, they got from, from mom and dad once, uh, once they were in college, especially the the post-college years in terms of, um, you know, kind of the, the gendered, um, advice they got in terms of, um, you know, whether, whether it was a, a good idea, you know, whether there was that support that, um, the parents would, um, lend, to. um, to the the, to their children pursuing music and there's a lot of fathers um that would talk about not i mean they would almost directly say and in some cases they would directly say to their sons you're an adult like when are you going to get over this music thing you need to get a damn job like i'm not going to give you a damn penny Um, so it was very much like all right this is fine you know this is fine when you're a teen this is fine when you're in college but now you're an adult man, you need to basically act like it, you know, put this music.
0: Or the relative, or the relative who was a doctor and said, "When are what are you going to do?" and and he felt that he didn't need to justify it and said, "This is what I'm doing."
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah. And some of them were able to do it because um again, just this now or never behavior. This is this is the time that I can do it. This is the time when I really don't have any major responsibilities and it's not um it's not putting the musicians didn't feel like it was putting them off time. Um, their parents and you know their family members certainly didn't see it that same way. But but they felt like this is this is the right time to do it. And my time might be limited. You know, like I might have a very short um, timeline that I can devote myself to to music and this possibility of music. Um, but yeah, you know that was that was something that that seemed to be um, somewhat gendered as well.
0: And then you really didn't take this approach in your book, but do you think that this might be a possibility of the millennial attitude and uh, uh maybe you'll find something different with the new generation Z or uh, maybe an earlier generation if you were to uh, in, uh have done the study during baby with the baby boomers when they are of this age
1: I think so yeah I do think there's something generationally um important in particular that's that's going on with this um sample and and with this cohort um because e- even some of the the lit re- which i reviewed and i think in the conclusion I, I talk about how um in in a lot of ways really when we get down to it these musicians aren't failing adulthood like it's not like they're not attaining this adult status because they're still every single one of them have have moved outside the family home of residence. Every single one of them are supporting themselves. Um, every some, single one of them just have this independent, self-sufficient life. Um, and that is very much the, you know, the the core of, of adulthood. And, and they're all attaining it and they're all um, pursuing their passion. You know, I think that that's something that we're starting to see generationally um, you know, I, I see it in my students, and and you know, I know that there's there's other um, work out there, national um, studies that have shown how um, there te- s- seems to be more um, more younger men and women that are are really pursuing their passion versus pursuing a, a paycheck in terms of what what they want to spend their lives doing. I think. Pursuing music is one avenue that that illustrates that, but but I do think that we, that we see this across the board um, today, where there's there's a lot of men and women that are are deciding and kind of managing their their careers or managing their possible careers in terms of thinking you know, what's going to satisfy me and what am I going to um, feel, uh, you know, is my you know, is my calling. You know, those sorts of things. You know, beyond just the the paycheck, or beyond just the idea of strategically choo- choosing a a major um, with a a particular career with with a particular salary in mind. Um, so I do think there's something um, kind of generalizable about this sample, even though they're unique because they're you know they're they're they really are playing the odds and you know they in some ways they are uh, making a big gamble by um contemplating um this this decision or contemplating this career pursuit um focused on music but but i really do think that there's something almost maybe not universal but you know but there is something generalizable in terms of um their non-musical uh peers um today and certainly i think that um that it would have been different you know, generation or, or two ago,
0: almost a almost a Marxian pushback, almost a sense of revolutionizing and saying we're not going to accept status quo. Let's go out on a on a limb and try something different. Absolutely, absolutely. Excellent. So you're in Texas now. There's a couple uh, music cities in uh, in the state of Texas, like Austin. Have you thought about continuing on your uh, with your work and seeing how different music towns look?
1: A little bit, you know, for for a while. And, and I'm originally from Texas, as you mentioned. Um, so after um, I was done with, with graduate school in Georgia, I was happy to come back to Texas. And I did start thinking about, um, you know, maybe doing a, a comparative um, study where I could look at, at a, a different college music town or you know, like a, a bigger music city like, um, like Austin, since there's so much, uh, musical activity going on there. And, you know, not just in terms of the number of bands, but just the size of the city and just the festival life and and that sort of thing. Um, I, I think there's some similarities in some ways. I think that, I don't know, in some ways I think that, um, Athens is, uh, is like, like there's something more. Special about a small college music town, and something even more powerful about a smaller college music town compared to uh, you know these larger uh, musical Um, Cities, whether it's Austin or New York, L.A., Nashville, that sort of thing. I mean, that's something that was kind of reflected in some of the interviews that I did with the musicians because they, they, of course, strategically moved to Athens um, when they could have moved to New York or L.A. or Nashville or Austin or or whatever the case may may have been. But there was something, you know, there was like this special pull about um, that Athens, you know, kind of – Uh, made it a no-brainer for them to, um, you know, to decide that they were going to, you know, make that venture there. Um, So I have kind of thought about that because I do think that there'd be certainly a lot of um, distinct um, aspects and and just the, the experience of being a musician in a bigger music city. Um, and, and in a nationally recognized music city um would be far different from what um these musicians experienced in in Athens um so i've i've thought about that you know i certainly have thought about that um you know i, I i'm also have have thought about just the idea of, of fandom and how that's something that that could be interesting to to explore as well in terms of um which is another potentially gendered and social class component of of music and music participation um, but yeah, I haven't uh really pursued that that line um as of yet, but that is uh always an interesting uh potential project for the future.
0: Well, we've come to, uh, to the time to uh, ask you, since we're out of, out of time, uh, what are you working on now? Well, right now I am I'm moving on something
1: far different from music, although I, I still love music, you know, and I, I still, you know, at some point imagine that I would like to go back to um, doing another study of music. But, um, but right now I'm starting to collect data on um, a qualitative project on fatherhood. And really what I have been thinking about, you know, the past um, couple of days, well, actually the past, two years or so, because I have a two-year-old daughter now. So now fatherhood is very much, you know, in my day-to-day life. And, you know, one of, of course, the priorities in my day-to-day life. Um, but I've started just to think uh, more about um, fatherhood and just the, the the sociology of fatherhood. And there's been great work on fatherhood. Um, but one thing that I think would be interesting to examine, especially where where I live, Corpus Christi is in South Texas. Um And I think it'd be interesting to examine um, just father's experience, maybe not even Light or work family conflict per se but just work family balance and just the work family kind of divide that um that fathers experience because of course we certainly hear a lot about that in terms of uh, women's lives and and in terms of, of mom's
0: lives um yes with our late last child right and the second shift and, and things like that but not too much on fatherhood
1: right. so i am interested because you do hear this new rhetoric and and of course we've seen a lot of research lately about this new um, construction of fatherhood and how um, a number of fathers are, are more active and and more um, you know participate at higher levels today, um, but just kind of examining how how work impacts that because of course work impacts the family as a whole and we've seen clearly how it impacts uh, women's lives and, and mothers' lives. Um, but I'd like to examine how it is that uh, working class, middle class lines of work uh, might differentially. Um, uh influence uh men's ways that they father and just kind of their constructions of, of fatherhood. Um South Texas, there's there's a, a, a diverse population here. There's a lot of Hispanic and, and Latino families down here, so um so of course it'd be nice to to add that to, to this new um project as well, looking not just how social class matters, not just how um the workplace context matters, but also how race and ethnicity matter. Um, so yeah, I'm at the beginning stages of this um project, but um you know I do think it's important work and you know there's there's a lot of um uh, just narratives and just you know the culture of, of fatherhood is something that um that I think would be interesting to to examine um just to see how it is that men father and and what their their experiences in family and work life look like today.
0: And to see how far we've come from the dichotomy of either being expressive or instrumental in the, right. uh, in, in the roles that we play. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it should be interesting. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you uh, again for uh, the interview today. And um, I, I look forward to working with you in the future on your, on your um, upcoming work on fatherhood.
1: Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me. It was great talking about my book with you.